So I was flipping around last night. I usually look at all the sports channels just for the hell of it, just to see what old games or what interviews or, or what programming all the sports networks are digging up to try to keep sports fans um, occupied during this long stretch of no sports. And coming across the Yes Network, they were replaying the Knicks-Nets from 1984, Christmas Day. One of those really interesting, cool sports days uh, where the Knicks and the Nets were both also rans. They had injury problems. They were not great. But Bernard King scored 60 points and just could not be stopped. But yet the Nets won. So it was it's a game that, you know, growing up, I was probably, you know, over 10 years old and certainly in the, in the throes of, you know, Nick fandom and being a huge Nick fan throughout that whole stretch. And Bernard King, of course, being the, the iconic figure for a Nick fan before Ewing came in. So seeing that game again, and it's a game that I believe has been replayed you know, over the years, and I've seen, you know, I don't know if I, I didn't have MSG uh, growing up. I didn't get that until I was probably in high school. Uh, we didn't really have cable until I was in high school. But my grandparents certainly had MSG, and I would watch all the MSG games when I went to visit them. Um, and you, know, you hear the voice of Jim Carvallis, who was the voice of MSG in the Knicks during that whole era in the early 80s and mid-80s. So it was really cool to see him and Butch Beard uh, doing the games, to see Hubie Brown again with his perm, and then to see the Nets coach who also had a perm, which was, you know, to see old man perm is uh, pretty cool, especially from, you know, the hair, the hairy days of the 80s. But the whole, the whole game itself, you know, just watching it, it, was, it brought back a flood of memories that, you know, yeah, it's so easy to, to bring up an old game on YouTube or anything, but how often do we really do it? With all the sports entertainment options, you don't really sit down and say, okay, let me go watch a game from 1984. It doesn't happen too often, at least for me. So seeing that Knicks-Nets game, really just, you know, you're struck by how, how time is, has gone by. Because it's funny, when you, when you watch games like that and MSG maybe replayed some of these 80s games you know, back years ago, and it, it, it wasn't as jarring because, you know, it's in color. It's not a black and white film, and, you know, it's still Madison Square Garden. But as time has gone on, you realize not just the garden itself, just the lack of uh, noise and there's more organ music and, you know, the visuals around the garden are a little different. It's not as eye-popping. And the camera angle... For those MSG games, especially on the 80s, now, I don't know when they changed uh, the camera angles. I know, you know, the garden was redone in the early, uh, in the early 90s, you know, and they did some initial upgrades. And the angles for cameras for, well, for games certainly got higher and, you know, so more of the court. Whereas when you're watching an MSG game from 1984, the first thing you notice is that the camera is practically on the floor, if not on the floor, the zooms are tight, you're seeing the action as if you have a, a floor seat, and it's so close, and it's eye level, and you're seeing the movements, and it, it really does mimic what it's like to sit and watch a game 
on a low level. So that's the thing you forget about how these games have evolved, where now you're pushed back. And so when you see a game now on MSG or on TNT or anything else, you're, you know, you're taking in the whole experience on the camera, the, the action on the floor, the fans surrounding it. So it's a really different visual experience. Obviously, the cameras and the HD, you know, televisions make things much clearer now. But that 1984 broadcast, you're looking at Bernard King. You're seeing him practically in front of your eyes. And you're watching the movement of these players right in front of you. And it's very tight. And you don't get a good feel of the crowd around it because you don't really see them. You're just seeing the action. So it's almost as if you're there. That's, I think that was the, you know, that was the impression they wanted to give in their cameras. So it was really cool, and just the over and the whole vibe of of the Knicks Nets nineteen eighty four. You know these weren't these weren't particularly great teams. They had injury problems. The Nets at that point had Daryl Dawkins injured. Would have been nice to see Daryl Dawkins in an old you know an old Nets game. You know Chocolate Thunder, who was just incredible. What a what a tremendous athlete and personality. And the Knicks were without Bill Cartwright. You know they're one of their anchors who eventually they traded to the Chicago Bulls in the Oakley trade, and who ended up himself winning, you know, three championships. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of memories flooding back, and you see how bad the Knicks team was in, in 1984. They just did not have the, have the people, have the, you know, the soldiers to compete. I mean, you have Bernard King, probably one of the great Knicks scorers of all time, one of the great players who, you know, it's... You know, his knee injury, you know, just completely devastated Nick fans for ye- for several years. Even with Ewing coming to the team, you know, you're always hoping that you could get Bernard King and Ewing together at a high level. And King did come back, but you know, the Knicks felt that he was not up to up to the task, and they traded him. Of course, I mean, they got rid of him to uh, you know to Washington where he ended up making an all-star team anyway, and still was putting up 20 points a game for, for the Bullets. Meanwhile, the Knicks never had that true second star to go along with Patrick Ewing. So you're watching this game, and it's, you know, what's the difference between a game in 2020 and a game in 1984? Well, number one, you know, the defense and the flow is very, very different because the, the movement back and forth of the uh, of the players is more haphazard, it's very choppy, is very little flow to to a game in 1984. It's a lot of broken passes, broken shots, bad decision making. Now, and we don't know. I mean, we we see a lot of the players on the Nets. I mean, you see Michael Ray Richardson. We all know what the trajectory and the history of his career was. You know, Otis Birdsong who was a very talented player, Mike Jaminski for the Nets, who we know his career was, he was a really solid player, you know, in the middle. And he was, you know, he was very skilled around the basket. And Jaminski had a nice career. Um, I don't know if younger people understand how good Mike Jaminski was in the, in the 80s, but he was a very talented player. Uh, then, you know, the Nets also had some other talented guys who were injured that night, Albert King, Bernard's brother. So, you know, they, the Nets had some talent, you know, but like the Knicks, they were nowhere near, you know, a competitive team. You know, they weren't competing with the Celtics or any teams like that. You know, the Knicks and Nets were both on a downward spiral, basically. And the Knicks, 
you know, that roster that they put out there is for that for that game. You're looking at, you know, Rory Sparrow, who is, you know, I like Rory Sparrow. He's a talented guard, did a lot of nice things. Um, Darrell Walker, who had a really great playoff run in 1984. And at that point, I think he was a second-year player. And he was solid. He, had a, he still had a decent career. He ended up, I think, joining Bernard in Washington also. And the rest of the team, Pat Cummings, James Bailey, Ken the Animal Bannister, Trent Tucker was on that team, Louis Orr, of course, of course, you know, this is the, and this is the team that the Knicks fielded, and, you know, you look up and down that roster, there was not a tremendous amount of talent to uh, accompany Bernard King, so the game itself was just you know, sloppy play, a lot of miscues, defensive misses, the Nets were exploiting uh, the lack of depth you know, the, that the Knicks had in the middle. The Nets were, were scoring at will inside. And, and, that's, and that's how the game went back and forth. And the Knicks, even with Bernard scoring so many of the, Knicks, of the Knicks' points, and he had 60 points, and his scoring came from everywhere. It came from the free throw line because there was no one who could defend Bernard, so he was constantly getting fouled. His movement around the basket also, he could score pretty much a will inside, and he had his little jumper. And he, and he, plus, when he decided to you know, charge on the fast break, I mean, he had the ability to pass. He was working on that during that year before he got hurt. And you hear Carvelis talk about you know, his ability to, to take the ball up, up court and then make that quick bounce pass to Rory Sparrow and, and feed him for an easy basket. So the you know there's a lot of you know there's a lot of talent that unfortunately never got to you know flower in the right way and Bernard had a great you know early part of his career and and he ended up you know being one of the elite players in the NBA but his injury you know basically curtailed any any forward progress and there was no championship to be uh, had by Bernard or the Knicks so that was you know it's it's bittersweet watching. A great player at the peak of his uh, performance, just you know, and then knowing what we know and knowing how that career was going to end up. But the best thing about you know watching a night game from 1984 is is the atmosphere of the Garden. It was, you know, it was a Christmas Day. It was you know, that's, and that was a tradition for the next to play on Christmas, and obviously, you know, at a at a point where people are probably half in the bag and had eaten and presents and it was just a fun light atmosphere and the, and the garden was was very mellow at least that's you know how you when you watch the game you can see that because it's Christmas day it's a fun day the Knicks were not that competitive at that point and yeah there was not a lot of juice going on in the garden and it would be that way uh, for a while you know until at least later in the 80s even with Patrick Ewing's um, you know, selection as as the Knicks draft pick the following season. So the Knicks were really at a, you know, they were in a low point, and they were going to become much lower after Bernard's injury. But it's it's just fun watching how the, you know, how the how the Garden reacted, and the lightness of it. And New York sports in the eighties was was very you know, it, you know, there were haves and have nots. And the Knicks were part of the have-nots. You know, the Rangers during that time were, 
you know, were hopeful and had talent and were, and were making strides toward, you know, a possible Stanley Cup. And they had some good players. So, you know, they, they, they definitely had a, you know, a better arc than the Knicks did. But, you know, the Rangers were still not, they weren't there yet in 1984. And the Yankees in 1984 were, you know, were a decent baseball team with Mattingly and Winfield and Gidry and Randolph, and they were solid. But no one was beating the Detroit Tigers. They were not among the elite teams in baseball. And they didn't have the pitching or the depth in the pitching staff to compete. So the Yankees themselves also were in that same boat. If you went to a Knicks game in 1984 or you went to a Yankees game in 1984, you get the same feeling. I mean, the fans were, were happy to be there. There was, there was a general level of excitement going to a Knicks game or going to a Yankee game. But the, the expectations, you know, not quite there. You're enjoying individual play more than a great team. You're watching Mattingly and Winfield or Guidry. You're watching you know, players like that if you're a Yankee fan in 1984. And if you're a Knicks fan, you're watching Bernard King. And you're enjoying that talent. And there was a lot of that. I mean, the Giants were a whole different story. And, you know, they didn't play in New York. They played in New Jersey. And, you know, they were getting closer to, you know, to a Super Bowl. And they had a lot of talent. And I remember watching them. And that's where the excitement was building in New York during that whole time period. Because, you know, the energy level of a fan is, is really you know, mirrors, you know, the talent and the, the arc of a, of a franchise. And you're looking at the Yankees in 1984. And I went to games, you know, throughout that whole stretch. And, I mean, it was, it was lighter, it was fun, it was, you know, the expectations weren't there. The Giants, and I wasn't going to Giants games necessarily, but I was certainly watching them on TV, and you could see with, with that roster, with LT and with, and with Sims and with, you know, what ended up being, you know, with, with Joe Morris and, and guys like that, you could see that, you know, there was a, you know, as that era unfolded, you know, the... The Giants were the team that was that was ready for a championship, and the Mets had the same thing going on. The Mets, I was not a Mets fan, but the Mets were certainly building a, a championship team with Strawberry and with Doc Gooden and Hernandez and Gary Carter. And as that team, you know, became what it was, and by 1984 with Gooden and with Strawberry, you were starting to see, you know, you know that team emerge. So there were there were haves and have-nots in New York sports during the during the mid '80s. The Knicks were not part of it, and that's why the mood in the Garden was, you know, kind of, you know, kind of mellow, kind of light, and the broadcast kind of mirrors that also. Jim Carvalis was a very even-keeled announcer. I mean, his voice was so distinctive, and so such a New York style voice, just conversational and light and his banter back and forth with Butch Beard who was again a solid player I believe for the Knicks and the Nets and he was I think he played for the Cavaliers too he played for a bunch of teams and just an overall nice nice voice nice guy to to watch and listen to and that was the mood of 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 the Knicks organization it was just lighter and mellow it was not very Crazy. I mean, we know Hubie Brown was. We know Hubie Brown was, you know, level ten of intense and screaming and yelling. And I'm sure, you know, watching the Knicks start their decline and then dealing with the Bernard injury, and I'm sure that left a scar with with Hubie Brown. But 
you know, the game itself, you're, you're watching it and you're seeing the level of play from 1984 versus the play in 2020 and the speed and the intensity and the athleticism that's, you know, that's on display now. I mean, it's no comparison. I mean, the game in 1984 was probably not much different than the game in 1970 or the game in 1964. And the movement and the play was still pretty much... Um, you know, pretty much on the ground. And there were some high flyers, there were some above-the-rim activity, but not nowhere near what it is now. And the shooting. The thing you notice more than anything, more than anything, is that the quality of shooting in 1984 was not even in the same stratosphere as 2020, where pretty much most of the players on the floor now can hit a three-pointer or can hit a, you know, their their quality of shooting seems to be significantly lower in 1984 when in fact when a player hits a a long jumper a 20 footer or anything like that the fans get very excited because most of the scoring seems to be 10 feet and in and in scrambles and in broken plays and it's it's kind of uh, it's a totally different way of playing whereas now the floor is spread you know in a more precise and defined way and spacing is so important in the game in 2020. Spacing of the entire floor, the whole half court is positioned so that the defense has less opportunity to help and more shooting in the three-point arc to get more points per possession. So the scientific aspect of it or the, you know, the statistical you know, ex- explosion that we've, that we've dealt with for the last 20 years certainly is shown in 2020, whereas in 1984, I don't think the understanding of spacing and shooting and everything else is, has, was, was mature enough yet. So you're watching a lot of close-up action of broken plays and Bernard's wizardry, and it's, and it's fun to watch, and it's really cool, and it's a great, great break from what else we're dealing with. But just you know, just looking at the fans too, looking at the hair, looking at the the sweatshirts and the clothing, and the, you know you realize also 1984 is you know 36 years ago, and that's a very very long time. I mean, think about this: something that was you know 36 years old in 1984 was what 1948. I mean, it's. Uh, it's pretty interesting. You think about how long ago 1984 is. So when I watched the game last night and just looking through it and then replaying a little bit of it this morning, it's, it's quite a, you know, it's quite a memory jar because it's, you know, this is something that when you're growing up and everything seems so contemporary and you, and you stays in your head, and even the first few years after an event and you would watch a replay of it or it, you know, MSG would show it again, and it still, you know, has, you know, has a, you have a sense of, well, this is, you know, it's contemporary, this is modern. 36 years now is a long time, so when you watch this, you just see all the changes. The only thing that's different, that's not different, is, you know, you look at the roof of Madison Square Garden, you see the distinctive, you know, the distinctive roof of the garden, and you know, well, it's the same building, but the arena is different, the fans certainly you know, there's a huge difference in the, in the fans' involvement and the Nick organization and the team. You know, those were the, those were the corporate days for, 
from, from Madison Square Garden. When they were owned by Gulf and Western, and then, and how, you know, the corporate, how does a corporation run a, run a franchise? And for the Knicks, I mean, the Knicks had their two championships, you know, early on, obviously it's in 70 and 73. And then by the 90s, when you have Bob Gakowski and you had, you know, the Paramount and all that going on from Madison Square Garden as a corporate entity, you know, there was, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, a corporate ownership where, you know, there may be a lack of focus. Now, of course, we're dealing with the other end of it where you have very personal ownership where the style and the quality of ownership is, is detrimental to the team. And that's what we're experiencing now. You know, the opposite of that was indifferent or unfocused corporate ownership. And, and, you know, the Yankees suffered from that too. You know, when the Yankees were sold by uh, Dell Webb and Dan Topping and that organization in the early 60s, and they sold it to CBS. CBS bought the team, and you know, they did not know how to run a baseball team, and the Yankees fell apart, and they didn't have the young players they needed to compete, and they were ultimately a, a second-division team throughout the entirety of CBS running the, running the franchise until Steinbrenner's group took over in 73. Now, the Knicks have a diff- completely different ownership style. They had, you know, they had corporate ownership that you know, was happy to have the garden running, and they certainly had lots of events going, and they were, you know, they were making money. You know, they had, you know, TV wasn't what it would become, but you know, they had steady attendance figures, and they, you know, they did okay. They did fine. But you know, in those days, it, it's hard to turn around a basketball team, and we're finding it still is. Because how do you turn around a basketball team? You need good draft picks, good trades, and the Knicks really had neither for most of that run. Ewing, you know, Mark Jackson maybe being the exceptions on that. I mean, Bill Cartwright was a good pick, but that was also 1979. It's a long time ago. So when you watch the game and you see how the Knicks and the Nets played, and you see a young Buck Williams play who ended up being on the Knicks, you know, later on in the 90s. And Buck Williams was a really talented player. And he was a great interior force, very solid. And the Nets actually had a, you know, had a more complete team than the Knicks did. They had better guard play. They had better interior forces. And the Knicks had Bernard King. And that's it. So, you know, it was a, it was a trip down memory lane, and it was, it was pretty cool to watch. And right now, with no sports to speak of, with nothing else on the calendar to look forward to, looking at an old Knicks-Nets game from 36 years ago was, was, was really interesting. Because I think the problem that a lot of the networks are getting into is they want to show old games, but they are afraid of showing games that are too old or too different from what you know, fans are used to seeing. And obviously, if you're showing a game, you know, pre-2000, you're getting into problems of, you know, high-definition versus traditional, you know, television viewing with a square box as opposed to the full screen. You're talking about pace of play. You're talking about um, the look of the broadcast. So, obviously, if you're, if you're a programmer, 
you have to say to yourself, well, what's going to be the least jarring to a viewer when they tune in and they see an old game and they, they have 20 years of games or X number of years of games where high definition you know, was available. So they can use those games and years to, um, you know, to highlight. And when you go older, even though you want to reach out and, and grab you know, a game from the 90s and, and, a, and a Michael Jordan game or a Sean Kemp game or whatever, whatever you're a star athlete you want to, I don't want to feature, you know, you're getting into problems of, you know, video, audio quality, um, pacing, whatever it is, whatever, you know, would be, is, you know, is not going to necessarily grab a viewer in 2020. So these are all problems that I guess the, the programmers on all the different networks have to, have to deal with. But you know what, there's so much competition, there's so many, you know, channels that you have to program that, why not? One channel can have an old game and I think it's worth it because how many times am I watching a 1984 Knicks-Nets game? It's been not too often but you know ABC has replayed you know some of the Lakers you know Celtic games from 2010 and you know for a split second when you turn on you know the HD looks great you know the crowd everything it's it, it looks like the game could have been two days ago instead of ten years ago and you can't really tell. And that's, the, that's one of the big differences. And I tell a couple of buddies of mine, when we talk about, you know, how things have changed, you know, if you look at fashion, if you look at you know, entertainment, you look at things, you can go back to 2008, 2010, something that's 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and your head, it doesn't seem very different. It's almost hard to tell that something is 10 years or 12 years old because just fashion really hasn't changed much, at least, you know, from maybe from a 40 five-year-old's perspective, it hasn't really moved, you know, the needle hasn't moved too much. Whereas, you know, you can tell the difference between a game in 1984 and a game in 1990, or a game from 1988 and a game from 1994, because fashion did change a lot throughout that whole span. Just like you can tell a game from 1972-73 and a game from 1978-79, because the same thing, like you have... You know, pre-disco fashion, early '70s fashion, and then you get into the late '70s, you know, wild disco, and huge bell bottoms, and you could, you know, you could really see the difference in how, you know, how things evolve. So it's, you know, it really is cool to see, and and I guess, you know, we we wrap things up. We look at Bernard King. You look at okay, this is a guy who, who had, who had everything. You know he could he could he could shoot. He had a very decent shooting touch from about you know ten to fifteen feet. You know he had great moves around the basket. Tremendous confidence. You know when he had the ball, and as they mentioned, as Carvelis talks about, the most physical scorer in the NBA for that time, because he wasn't a finesse guy. He was a guy who could dig in and get physical, get contact get the foul and the basket. You know, he was your traditional three-point play guy, not a three-point shooter. So he was a guy who really had great moves around the basket. And you're watching him. His 60 points, he's getting it from everywhere around the floor. He's, and he's grinding. He's fouling people left and right. He can't, you know, he can't be stopped. And as a Knicks fan, you know, it's, 
we were so consumed with getting that next championship that you almost lose sight of you're watching a transcendent talent, a great scorer. And, you know, at the Knicks, we're, you know, we're lucky to have Patrick Ewing for the next, you know, 15 years. So there was a, there's an element of being spoiled. Say, well, we have Bernard King, we have Patrick Ewing. But now with this, this era where we have had no real superstar for a long time, and even Carmelo's run here, you know, is, is really fraught with, with difficulty. But, you know, Bernard King was so amazing. He was, he was such a talented player. If the Knicks had fielded even a halfway decent supporting cast, you know, who knows what the uh, mid-'80s would have looked like even before his injury. And who knows if it contributed to his injury because think about all the pressure and all the stress he was putting on his body to keep that, keep that team afloat. He never had other options to take the load off. He, all the pressure, all the difficulty was on, was on Bernard King. And I always think back to the fact that, yeah, he got, he, you know, he got injured in Kansas City, blew out his knee. But, you know, who knows what, what would have happened if the Knicks had more talent throughout that whole stretch and he didn't have to, you know, bend his body to keep things going for all that time. Who knows? That's a what if. But last night was a, was a very, you know, fun reminder of the way things used to be and the way that, you know, the way the team looked and the broadcast. And it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, hope the Knicks and Nets, you know, channels, hope Yes and MSG dig into their archives and show more gems like that. And anyway, once again, I hope everyone's safe and having a good time at home, secure. And I'll talk to you again. Take care. This is 1973, a Knicks podcast.